The message we're going to consider this morning is one that uh, we sung about this morning. This morning we sung in a song um, that our citizenship is in heaven. Heaven's citizen through grace and grace alone. Heaven's citizen by grace and grace alone. Christians are not at home in the world. The Bible makes that clear. Christians are anticipating, waiting for, desiring a homeland with God in heaven that we don't currently experience on this earth. Uh, Peter, in writing to different churches in his day, said, Beloved, I urge you as uh, strangers in exiles or sojourners in exiles. Uh, Christians have a citizenship in heaven and we're temporary residents here on earth. If that's the case, how how should we live? How then should we live in a world that we live in but is not our eternal home? And that's what I'd like us to consider this morning. And we're going to consider that from the book of Daniel. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, you can open it up to Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. Daniel's one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. You have in your Bible, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, right after Ezekiel's Daniel. And just to set the context a little bit for us this morning, God's people were brought out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them with a mighty right hand. And they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years without a home, but God protected them, and God then brought them into a promised land. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey. It was a land that was abundance and all that it had abundance and all that it had. But as the generations rolled on and the years rolled on, The people forsook God in their hearts to the point that they were cast out of the promised land. They went into exile, similar to how Adam and Eve in the garden enjoyed the paradise of God, but through their sin were exiled out. God's people in the promised land enjoyed a paradise of God, but because of their sin, they were exiled And the story we read about this morning in Daniel chapter 3 is a picture of what happened during that exile when God's people weren't in their home. They were out of the promised land. So let's read the text, Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. Its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, And all the officials of the providence gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the tragon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tragon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at a certain Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have set up, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver from my hand or out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, The flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men 
unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not have any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin. For there is no other god who's able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the providence of Babylon. Let's pray. Father, what we have here is, is a remarkable miracle that you did in preserving your people and keeping your people the same way you showed Pharaoh through a mighty hand that you are God over all the earth. In this story, you showed King Nebuchadnezzar that you are the God of all the earth, that you are the most high God, There's no God mightier than you. There's no God stronger than you, O God. And as we seek to learn more about your word here and what you have to teach us, we pray that you would help us, God. You say the unfolding of your word brings light, and we pray as your word is unfolded, you would do that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So God's people are strangers and exiles in this world, and three points we'll consider this morning is that as a sojourner and stranger on this earth, you should take comfort that God humbles the proud. You should take comfort that God humbles the proud. Secondly, as a stranger and exile on earth, you should be bold in faith knowing your God. You should be bold in faith knowing your God. Thirdly, as strangers and exiles in this world, you should entrust your soul to God, for he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Take comfort, God humbles the proud. Be bold in faith, knowing your God. Entrust your soul to God, for he knows how to deliver the godly from trials. As strangers and exiles, take comfort that God humbles the proud. First off, who was King Nebuchadnezzar? What were some of his achievements? Well, he ruled in the 6th century BC, and many kingdoms were laid in his wake. He was seen as the superpower at the time. Uh, He laid, this is from extra biblical sources, but the kingdom of Egypt laid low. The kingdom of Tyre destroyed. And not only did he destroy these nations, He then brought the people from those nations into his own kingdom, gave some of them new names, 
and assimilated them into Babylon. He wasn't just about military dominance. He was about Babylonian exceptionalism. He wanted this idea of this Babylonian kingdom to spread through all of the earth. He thought they were the nation that was doing everything the right way. Not only did the kingdoms that he conquered, not only did he take them and assimilate them into Babylon, those kingdoms that he conquered were viewed as lesser kingdoms and lesser gods. So when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, when I told you the people of God came into exile, it was he that came into Jerusalem. It was he who burnt the temple down in Jerusalem. It was him who destroyed what the temple was the center of God's people at that time. It was that most important place they had, and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. So in his mind, the God of Israel was inferior to his gods. But what he didn't understand was that God was using him to judge his people because of their sin. So this is some of who he was. How was he proud? Well, you see here in verse 1 with me, King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden image. And you might ask, how does him making a golden image make him proud? Well, the answer is, in the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar receives an image, a dream, and an image in his dream of an image made up of different metals. And each metal, of the, each metal represented was a successive kingdom that was going to come after him. He was the head of gold in the dream. But then there was other kingdoms that were going to raise up made of different metals. So when Nebuchadnezzar, in the very next chapter, makes an image of gold, he's making quite the statement. He's saying, my kingdom's not going anywhere. There's not going to be any kingdom after my kingdom. Not only was he proud in making a golden image, and I should say, the image was about 90 feet tall, and it was taller than it was wide. So most likely an image of a, a human person. Think of three school buses stacked on top of each other, set up in a plane. That's kind of what we're thinking about when we think about this image and how big it was. The second uh, evidence I would give to you uh, that reflected his pride is you see in verse 1, he set it up in the plain of Dura. All through this passage, we see that verse repeat, that phrase repeated, he set up, he set up. Uh, you see it at the end of verse 2. If you let your eyes kind of scroll down there. That Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We see it in verse 3. The end of, uh, kind of middle of verse 3. The image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, we see it at the end of verse 5. The golden image that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, we see it at the end of verse 7. The golden image that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, we see it at the end of verse 12. The golden image that you have set up. What's the significance of this set up? Well, in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 44, it reads this. And in the end, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So the previous chapter is talking about the God of heaven setting up a kingdom. And in chapter three, all it's talking about is Nebuchadnezzar setting up things. 
The, the verse in chapter two goes like this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Clearly speaking about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that would come thousands of years later, or sorry, hundreds of years later. So Nebuchadnezzar's proud. He made this image of all gold. He's proud that he set up. He's the one that thinks he can set up kings and everlasting dominions. Well, how did God humble him? Well, look with me at uh, verse 22 of our passage. Nebuchadnezzar commanded that these youths, I just want to remind you, these are not old men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are youths. Teenagers, maybe a little older than teenagers. Verse 22 says, because the king's order was urgent, the furnace was, and the furnace was overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. On the one hand, Nebuchadnezzar's mighty men die in the flame. On the other hand, those youths, those young men that follow God are protected. Nebuchadnezzar could not protect his servants, but the Most High God can protect his servants in the midst of the flame. Nebuchadnezzar is also forced to answer his own question. Look in verse 15, the end of verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's the question he poses. However, by uh, verse 29, he answers his own question. At the end of 29, he says, for there's no other God to rescue in this way. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God. And what I want you to think about is that that should be a comfort to you if you're a Christian. That should be a very comforting thing if you're a Christian. How comforting would it be to the original hearers who are in exile? The most significant place for their worship, for their lifestyle, for their society was the temple. And King Nebuchadnezzar burnt it to the ground. This is a king who destroyed everything that they knew. How comforting to them would it have been that God can humble the proud. God brings low the greatest kings. He often brings them down to the dust. Though they may boast of great things, God is able to bring them low. Take comfort that God humbles the proud. There's a hymn, it's called, This Is My Father's World. And it goes, one of the verses goes something like this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Do you need the reminder this morning that God rules the world? Do you need the reminder that although the wrong seems often so strong in the world, God is the ruler yet? God humbles these kids humbles kings of the earth very often. Uh, it's also a deep warning to us to forsake pride. If we're honest with ourselves, there are times that we, like Nebuchadnezzar, want to self-exalt ourselves. We want to make life all about ourselves. We're tempted to want to make life all about ourselves and forget that life is all about the most high God, the God who made the universe. What does God do with proud men? Does he exalt them? I think not. So let us take heed and take comfort that God humbles the proud. 
One of my favorite things to do in the Bible is ask the question, why are there so many fallen kings? Why do we have the record in the Old Testament of so many kings that get raised up and so many kings that get brought low? Have you ever wondered that for yourself? Well, one of the reasons is to make our hearts yearn for a perfect king. One of the reasons is to make our hearts yearn for an immaculate leader. Make our hearts yearn for a leader who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Make our hearts yearn for a leader whose scepter of his kingdom is one of uprightness. Of course, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In that same chapter, chapter two, that Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you've got all these kingdoms represented in an image and there's a stone that comes, not cut from human hands, and it crashes into the feet of that statue. And all, all those kingdoms come crumbling down. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done through coming on earth, preaching the gospel, and the advancement of his kingdom. Let's consider how Nebuchadnezzar is completely different than King Jesus. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar breaks God's law by making an idol and setting it up. Jesus, on the other hand, was the perfect king of righteousness who obeyed God's law at every point without any fault, without any failure. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. What a king we have in Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar's subjects addressed him in verse 9, O king, live forever. But what do you find? In chapter 5, he's dead and gone. He is no more. His son now rules his kingdom. But the Bible tells us that Jesus became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I'm the first and the last, the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Nebuchadnezzar died, was laid down in the tomb. Jesus died and he rose again. What a king we have in Jesus. In pride, Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself by replicating an image, not the way he saw it, of different metals, but of all gold. But Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. Jesus is a humble king. What a king we have in Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was of this world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Most importantly of all, in my opinion, Daniel chapter three, verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar threatened death to those that did not bow down. King Jesus himself tasted death so that his people may bow down and worship in spirit and in truth. What a king we have in Jesus. One of the most fundamental realities that a Christian confesses is that Jesus is Lord. It's instrumental to the understanding of what a Christian is. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your king, you haven't submitted your life to him, you haven't... Acknowledge that you need a king in your life. You need to follow the servant shepherd king. Would you consider doing that today? Would you lay aside your sin and your pride and come to him humbly 
Acknowledge that you need his death on the cross to wash your sins all away. Know that he lived that perfect life that you couldn't live. And he died that sacrificial death on the cross that you couldn't die. And he rose again gloriously on the third day. Would you come to King Jesus? What a king we have in Jesus. As strangers and exiles, we should take comfort that God humbles the proud. We should also be bold in faith, knowing our God. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond uh, when these three men uh, talk to him? Well, or how does he respond when he finds out they won't bow down? In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Matthew Henry remarks, it's interesting that some who rule over others, they can't rule their own spirits. It's interesting some kings that have many subjects and rule over them, but they have no control over their own temper. Nebuchadnezzar was in fury and was in rage. Not only was his furnace hot, his anger was hot against these men. And the king gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego an ultimatum. And it went like this. Bow or burn. Worship or forfeit your lives. Fall down or fall in. There's no middle ground. This is an intense moment in the lives of these three youths. And to complicate things even further, there's music playing. And no doubt the music is meant to soothe them into compliance to make them forget their commitment to God. Well, what sort of punishment do they face? Well, it was death by fire. Um, Not only a furnace, but a fiery furnace. Not only a fiery furnace, but a burning fiery furnace. The furnace was so hot it needed two adjectives to describe it. Fiery, burning furnace. Similar, you know, I'm not sure that this is where George Lucas got this from, but Jabba the Hutt on his throne room in Tatooine, you remember the scene, he has a button beside his throne that opens a trap door where the unsuspecting victim falls into the rancor pit with gnawed bones all around of his victims. But Jabba from his throne can look down and see the torture and the punishment of his victims. In a similar way, King Nebuchadnezzar not only makes a furnace, but he makes a furnace that he can look into and see the punishment of his victims. This is a brutal king. What should we learn from these three men? Well, one thing that's helpful as you study the Old Testament and read the Old Testament is, how do the New Testament authors look back on the story? So look with me, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 11. In the New Testament, you remember the scene in Hebrews uh, chapter 11. It's known as the Hall of Faith. So all these Old Testament characters that lived and trusted God in faith are being recounted, and a list of what they did is being made. And what is the purpose of the writer of Hebrews? He wants his hearers to endure to the end. He wants them to have good examples of people who ran the race of faith and finished 
so that they might press on. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, these men are listed. I'll read it starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jethro, and David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises. Now, this is where we get to talk about Daniel on the lines then that comes later and our story today. Who stopped the mouth of lions, who quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, through their faith in the Most High God, the Bible says they quenched the power of fire. They were bold through faith. So how should we receive this? How should we think about this? You should hear the story of the bold faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it should cause you to press on in your Christian life, to endure to the end. You're not the first person that's experienced opposition in your Christian life, and you won't be the last. And as you go through Hebrews 11, they all had faith, but their lives all looked so different. Some were tortured. Some received pain and punishment, and others received good things. So you can have a life of faith, and things can go very well, earthly speaking, or you can have a life of faith and experience many difficulties and sufferings. The Bible's filled with both. And so we should be bold in faith like these men. We should run the race. We should endure to the end despite trials and persecutions. Will you resolve with me to be bold in faith knowing our God? Back to Daniel chapter 3. There's another consideration that we want to think about together. And starting in verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you thought about this? They weren't suffering by themselves. Later, Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. He is by himself. But these men are suffering together in the Christian life. Maybe there's a trial that you're currently in. Maybe there's something you're going through personally that you're keeping to yourself, that you're not understanding there may be other people in this body going through the exact same things. And maybe you need to link arms with those people. Maybe we need to acknowledge, I don't have to go through every trial alone. Maybe it's God's will for me to come alongside other believers going through the same thing and we can run the race together. The bold faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is seeing how they respond to the king. And I'll remind you, these are their last words that we ever have in the scriptures. We don't have anything else they've ever said, but they went out with a mic drop. They went out in a powerful way, and it's been encouraging believers ever since. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have no need to answer you in this matter. I find that a very respectful way to address the king. They're not saying, we don't want to listen to you at all. We have no need to respect you in anything that you say. They've submitted themselves to this kingdom. 
But there's one matter that they can't submit themselves to this king. It's because what God has told them to do and what the king is telling them to do is not compatible. It would be impossible for them to obey God and obey what Nebuchadnezzar is telling them to do. They need to serve God rather than man in this matter, the matter of bowing down to the idol. So I think it's very significant, and they responded to the king very respectfully. They resolved to serve God rather than man in the matter of bowing down to the idol. More than that, they responded in bold faith. Let's look at it together. There's two ways they responded that I want to highlight. They responded and trusted who God was. They trusted the attributes of God. The two attributes that they trusted was God's power and God's goodness. God's power and God's goodness is where their faith laid and it made them bold. Verse 17, if this be so, our God who we serve is able. What is significant about the phrase is able? What does the phrase is able say about God's power, about God's ability, about God's omnipotence, about the fact that he's the most high God? God is able. What me and some Christian friends would do uh, in the past is someone would say, God is able, and then someone else would respond, more than able. It's this like reminder that Christians need that no matter how dire the circumstance, do you believe God is able? Are you trusting his power? Uh, God created the sun and feeds it with fuel to burn. God set the stars in the heavens. God causes the moon to move in complete orbit around the earth. What's too hard for the Lord? He's able. So they trusted that God was powerful but they also trusted his goodness. You see in verse 18, but if not, he's able, but if not, if he chooses not to for reasons unbeknownst to us, we know he's able to deliver us, but in this certain situation, we're not convinced that he will, or if he does deliver it, that is what's most glorifying to him and what's most best for our eternal good. What is that? That's trusting his goodness. That's acknowledging that God is wiser. God knows more. And when we don't get delivered from a trial, we trust his goodness. We say, God, all that I am is in your hands. What do I have on evident earth? I have nothing but you. I don't understand. If God doesn't deliver me, I'm going to trust that he's good. I'm going to believe in the attribute of God's goodness. I like to illustrate this in a certain way. In Mark's gospel, there's two men that come to Jesus. One man is a father that has a demon-possessed son. The other man is a leper that comes to Jesus. The man with the demon-possessed son comes to Jesus and says, but if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and, and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible to the one who believes. 
this father doubted Jesus's power, his ability. On the other hand, there's a leper that comes to Jesus in Mark chapter one, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean. What's the difference between the two men? Well, one man was doubting Jesus's power and ability to do the miracle. And the other man believed in his power and his ability, but was unsure of his willingness in the certain situation. And we found Jesus very willing. If you're in a trial, would you resolve to taste and see that the Lord is good? Would you remind yourself of God's power, of God's goodness? Would that be a rock for your feet? It was for these men, and their faith made them very bold. We need a big view of God in our trials, don't we? I'm reminded of a pastor who sat down, and a very distraught woman sat down in the pew beside him and was recounting all of her difficulties, all of her anxieties, all of her troubles. And the pastor said, I think what you need to do is you need to get a big view of God. The problem is that your view of God and who he is and his greatness and his glory is, it's too small. And that's often what I need in my trial. And I think that's what we need in our trial. What else do we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they responded to the king? Well, we, respond, we learn about faith. What is faith? Faith is personal trust personal trust in God and his promises. But faith doesn't only trust God in sickness and in wealth. Well, faith doesn't only trust God in health, it also trusts God in sickness. Faith not only trusts God in the mountain, but it also trusts him in the valley. Faith trusts God in joy, but it also trusts him in sorrow. Faith trusts God in riches as well as in poverty. So these men were in a pressure cooker of a situation, and their faith made them very bold. May we resolve to be bold through faith. How would that change our witness in our workplace, our witness around our extended family, if we were bold through faith? As strangers and exiles take comfort that God humbles the proud, as strangers and exiles be bold in faith knowing your God, finally, as strangers and exiles, entrust your soul to God, for he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Verse 25 says this, then the king was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselor, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? It's interesting that he's a leader, and all up to this point, it's been I, 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 I. But the moment he gets a whiff that he might have made a mistake, what does it become? We. Didn't we do this? I think this is leaders can learn something from this. Are you the sort of leader that when everything is going good, it's me, me, me? 
then you catch a whiff that a deal might fall through. You catch a whiff that something might go awry. And all of a sudden, we want to include as many people in it as we can. I think we should fight against this. I think as leaders in business, in the church, wherever, we should seek to take full responsibility. But Nebuchadnezzar is a coward, and he changes his language from I to we. To the king's amazement, he sees four men unbound, walking around, not hurt. And the fourth person is identified later as an angel. Um, In verse 26, what does the king do? He came near to the door. You recognize with me, it doesn't say the king opened the door. I wonder why that was. The heat coming from that door, no human being could touch that door. Imagine the greatest bonfire you've ever seen multiplied by a factor of 100. That's the sort of heat we're talking about. The door was too hot to touch, but God's people walked out of the furnace. Imagine the scene with me. Nebuchadnezzar draws near to the door. He says, come out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what did they do? They came out from the fire. Tongues of flames of fire all around them, blasting forth heat of unimaginable intensity. The doors open. God's people walk out. This is a remarkable miracle that God did. He saved his people from the fiery furnace. But not only were they rescued from the furnace, they were rescued to a remarkable extent. Not only were they rescued, they were rescued to a remarkable extent. Verse 27, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of smoke had come upon them. No smell of smoke had come upon them. That's remarkable. Maybe you, like me, have been beside a bonfire and a campsite, and you're driving home, and what do you notice? Wow, just from being beside the bonfire, I smell like smoke. These men weren't beside the fire. They were in the fire. God delivered them to a remarkable extent. We had a toaster explode in our kitchen. It malfunctioned. It caught on fire. And what we had to do is rush it out onto the deck and sit it on the table. Literally, for a week, our house smelled like smoke. We couldn't get the smell of smoke out of the house. These men were in the midst of the strongest, most fierce fire that we could possibly imagine. But God delivered them to a remarkable extent. And this is God's pattern in the Bible, isn't it? You remember the people of Israel come out of Egypt? They're brought to the Red Sea. And what does God do? A miracle that the Red Sea's parted. And his people walk through. But not only do his people walk through, they walk through, the Bible says, as on dry land. God could have made it so that they muck their way through that water, that they sloshed and pressed down in the mud all the way across. But God did a miracle in a remarkable way. David and Goliath, you remember the story? 
God, David could have killed Goliath with a sword. God could have got just as much glory from that story. But what did he do? Slingshot. God delivers to a remarkable extent. God also delivers his people to a remarkable extent in salvation. Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus has delivered you to a remarkable extent. He has taken all of the wrath that you deserved. He didn't just take some. He didn't take a little. He took all of your sins, past, present, and future. Jesus delivers to a remarkable extent. You remember that hymn, It's Well With My Soul? Oh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Jesus doesn't save in part. He delivers to a remarkable extent. What is it? Uh, It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Maybe you're a Christian and you need that reminder that God delivers to a remarkable extent. Maybe you forget that your sin has been decisively and finally dealt with in the cross of Jesus. Jesus really was a substitute for his people and died on the cross. He's dealt with our sin. He's cast it into a sea without bottom or without any bottom. But he doesn't cast it in the sea like a cork that's going to go down and then come back up again. He casts it in the sea like a lead weight that sinks straight to the bottom, never to be seen again. Jesus delivers to a remarkable extent. If you're an unbeliever here this morning and you've never been delivered by Jesus, you've never come to him with your sin, confessed your sin to him, acknowledged him as the Lord of your life, the Savior who hung and bled on a tree for your sins and rose again from the grave. What I would encourage you to do is turn from sin and turn towards this deliverer. We want to turn away from idols and sin in our lives and turn to this one that provides such a remarkable deliverance. And finally, we want to think about us here today that are in trials and persecutions. How deep and how wide is the trial you're currently in? Do you have the confidence that God is able to pull you out of that? Are you trusting his power in that situation? It may be a wayward child. It may be a difficult family situation that you have. I want to encourage you that God is able and he's worthy of your trust in that trial. Brothers and sisters, we're just passing through this world. We're strangers and exiles, and often we're in hostile situations. May God help us take comfort that he humbles the proud. May God help us be bold in faith knowing him. May God help us entrust our souls to him because he knows how to rescue the godly from trials until we go over the river to our eternal inheritance forevermore. Amen. Let me pray. Father, your word is very great and your power is very mighty. 
and these men came forth from the flames. We want to get a sense of your greatness, God. We want to understand more deeply your power. Uh, and so, God, would you allow your word to encourage us and spur us on towards faith in you? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.